the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Many of you out there perhaps are uh, part-time gardeners or like to, uh, what's the word, not tweak? I'm trying to think, what is, it, what is the proper, appropriate term here, Jarrell? You, you, you love to meddle around in the garden. <laughs> uh, your spouse might say occasionally killing plants. Uh, certainly that's, uh, that's one of my uh, badges that I wear none too proudly. But uh, you know, then again, you might have some luck and success once in a while. You certainly know that there are times and seasons when older plants, more mature plants, uh, begin facing some growth challenges. Uh, seemingly, no matter how much water you feed them or how oftentimes you uh, turn them to make sure they're facing the light, uh, their leaves begin to get yellowed. Uh, the edges perhaps begin to, to grow brown. There is a lot less new growth, and the older growth, quite frankly, is looking dingy, tired, and worn out. So what do you do? Is there a way in which you can revitalize and bring new life to that plant and hope that it will um, somehow will carry on further? Well, one of the big methods is plants like that oftentimes become uh, root-bound, particularly when they're potted plants. And so it requires going in, uh, removing the potting uh, around them, uh, trimming the root, which sometimes can be a painful process, and then, of course, replanting that plant in new soil, fresh fertilizer, lots of water, lots of sunlight, And the vast majority of times, in fact, that replanting process, as time-consuming and perhaps painful as it might be in shock to the plant initially so, can be the long-term solution to giving that plant a new lease on life. Let's think of that same analogy when it comes to churches and church planting. Does it sound familiar, a congregation that's been around for many, many years, many generations, and at the edges is starting to look sort of drab and dreary and tired? There is no new growth, and so oftentimes the decision comes, gee, is it time to just put that plant out of its, or that church, out of its misery, or are there things that we can do to replant that church in a similar fashion the way we do a replanting of a plant a house plant to give it a new lease on life well my next guest tonight i think would suggest the answer is absolutely so he is a gardener of sorts a missionary uh, author and um, professor at uh, Beeson divinity school in birmingham alabama he spent uh, years in bangkok thailand and um, works as a, a church an advisor in many respects, helping churches discover how a dying congregation can grow once again. The book is called Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. Dr. Mark Devine, great to have you on the program tonight. Oh, it's 
great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This is a, this is a painful process, isn't it? Uh, number one, I think oftentimes painful for congregations to admit uh, that they are, in fact, uh, facing a very uncertain future. It really can be, and um, uh, I really didn't set out to become sort of a, you know, a church a consultant or a fixer, but uh, once I became a professor and could no longer serve as full-time pastor, I found myself really not knowing what to do with myself, and so I ended up becoming uh, an, in, uh, a serial interim pastor for churches that are without a pastor. And then after the first couple of those, I really found myself in a new, uh, exciting ministry uh, with a growing mission field because 80% of churches in North America are declining. And I really found myself um, really looking at these churches very differently than it is just a way station for the next pastor, but trying to think, well, wait a minute, this church has been declining for so long, they've had one pastor after another, is there something I can do in my unique position, since I don't want to stay permanently, that might help this congregation grow again? And I haven't always been successful, but it's really been exciting uh, to try to help in these ways. You speak throughout the book of your experiences, specifically at um, the Calvary Baptist Church. Let's talk a bit about that. Uh, this is a church that you describe as having been in its third decade of decline, and, and certainly one of the big indicators that there was lots of trouble afoot. It went through the totality of eight pastors, four permanent, four interim, in just 10 years. That, that's, what, like a year and a half or so per pastor? That certainly doesn't bode well in terms of the healthiness of that church or <laughs> the very least the stick to it to this uh, of those called to lead. I'm told that the average pastorate now, tenure of a, of a pastor in churches today in North America, hovers around two years. That's hard to believe. But um, it really is an indication of sort of the uh, the, the pathology, the lack of vision, uh, and the difficulties. And what happens oftentimes in these churches is that after the first two or three pastors uh, stay a very short time and leave, um, the, the congregation itself lapses into a pattern of behavior that prevents it from being led. Inevitably, uh, highly motivated laypersons, often very well-meaning, begin to occupy leadership turf that really belongs to a pastor, and these congregations become, without even realizing it, virtually unleadable. And so for all the good intentions that many might have and the pockets of ministry that often exist in these churches, they're really, they've rendered themselves uh, resistant to any real visionary, uh, strong pastoral leadership, and usually until that uh, is changed. It usually is. Most of these churches never come back. Well, in, in, in all fairness, uh, Dr. Devine, you, you speak in the book of, of the fact that there had been individuals that were in these positions, and I would imagine to the greatest degree, many of them um, out of necessity. When we look at that high degree of turnover, I mean, suddenly from transitioning from one pastor to another, there are areas of need and care within uh, the greater life and body of the church and pastoral ministry that need time and need attention. And so uh, it would seem like a lot of these folks might have stepped into those positions, uh, probably of, of good heart and will, 
But then uh, what are you suggesting? Something happens along the way where they they kind of uh, dig their heels in and suddenly it, it moves from here's a, a deacon so-and-so or sister sus and such. So God bless her is willing to step in while we're in the middle of a, a crisis here. Pastors left. We've got an intern pastor who's trying to get the lay of the land. And so they're willing to come in and help out. And then what? It turns into uh, suddenly from um, good-hearted ministry to taking advantage of personal perks and privileges? A lot of the decisions that a pastor might make or lead the congregation to make end up being made by powerful lay people, and they get used to doing that, and they like to do it. And once a congregation sees pastors come and go quickly a few times, they they are slow to treat the next pastor as though he will be around for, for very long, and therefore his ability to gain their trust and lead is uh, is greatly diminished. And then if a pastor comes in who's bound and determined to lead, then he faces resistance with entrenched sort of turf, uh, uh, turf battles where various people have staked out some turf that uh, they see as theirs and they're protective of it, but as long as the pastor can't lead, uh, you know, if he, if he can't have influence on that turf, then he really can't lead the congregation, and these pastors eventually give up and and they go. If you've just joined the conversation, we're talking about a lot of the principles that gardeners use in bringing new life to a dying plant by replanting it. We're all familiar with the concept of church planting. What about the concept of church replanting? Some lessons on how a dying church can grow again. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. Maybe your church is going through some of this. Maybe you have individuals in your church that, as Dr. Devine suggests, have stepped in to help out during difficult times and suddenly now are intentionally or otherwise engaged in making decisions and taking on areas of authority, quite frankly, biblically, belong to the pastor, but out of emergency or short-term necessity, they have taken. And suddenly now it's gone from, let me step in to help out, to essentially a usurping of position, authority, and spiritual responsibility that ultimately does not bode well for the life of that church. If you're in that kind of circumstance, you may want to just simply eavesdrop on our conversation. Maybe you want to dive a little bit deeper, and uh, I can understand not wanting to get out on the radio and uh, reveal your name or the church that you're involved with, but time out. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. A look at replant, how a dying church can grow again. He had such an experience. You had served as a missionary in in Thailand. At what point and how, what was the process, uh, Dr. Devine, where they they called you to uh, First Calvary? And when you got there, what kind of a shape did you find the place in? Well, I was just available uh, to serve as a supply preacher for churches that did not have a pastor or an interim pastor, and uh, there were people who knew that I had helped a troubling church, and they recommended me to this congregation, and I had a meeting with two of the leading lay uh, leaders there, and they they talked a really strong game of we need leadership. They were, they were down to around, oh, 150 or so in a sanctuary, beautiful sanctuary that would seat 600 it looked like a little Spurgeon's tabernacle plunked down in Kansas City Missouri Uh, but once I got in there I realized that that this church was virtually unleadable and so they talked about leadership 
but really they they lapsed into a state where they really uh, treated pastors as an employee with discrete duties. You know, preach a sermon, uh, do the wedding, do the funeral, do some pastoral care, but really leadership was not on the cards at all. And I began to think about that, pray about that, and dream about was there is there a way that this congregation uh, could reverse its decline and start to reach people for Christ in that neighborhood again? In your book, you refer to them as members of the in the lay cartel, which I thought was brilliance. Uh, there is the sense of of really sabotaging pastoral leadership because they've essentially usurped pastoral responsibility and authority. And we hear this every once in a while, particularly seems to be uh, an excuse or pretext by so-called megachurches where we wish to have a, uh, there's an administrative pastor, there's a pastoral pastor, there's the preaching pastor. Uh, and, and we've divided the duties up so much so that it doesn't at the end of the day seem to be one individual that is accountable to God or, or responsible for anything. And then all this little laity running around as if they're controlling a, a a, a small corporation or miniature fiefdom. And one of the, the developments that you see in many of these uh, these historic churches that are in decline is that um, they will uh, resist on the basis, the stated basis, that they are protecting a great tradition. And that was one of the means by which they thwarted attempts to lead at First Calvary. But one of the most paradoxical and surprising things that happened uh, in Kansas City at this church is that I began to study the history of the church. I found that they had taken radical decisions many times that were risky, that that required a lot of faith, that that were made in order to make the changes needed to advance the gospel. And so when I came to them with the, the notion that we might consider joining with another congregation that had demonstrated uh, leadership and effectiveness in a cultural context just like ours, and they would provide the leadership, Uh, I was able to take their history and say, if we face this opportunity according to our tradition, we will be open to significant change. And it kind of turned the tables on the you know the self-appointed protectors of the tradition at that church and you know i don't wish to i want to get in trouble here with listeners and and seem to come off as if i i have utter disregard for tradition or uh, a sense of uh, spiritual legacy or history but at the end of the day as we as we measure it purely by the yardstick of Scripture. I mean, am I wrong in saying that when we kind of distill it all down, it comes to a couple of basic uh, principles here, Um, certainly the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, discipleship, evangelism. I mean, that's kind of the the primary role of the church, and all of that seems to be very forward-looking. I I, I know that the Lord certainly is appreciative if a church has had a history of, uh, you know, having great men preaching in pulpits, and many have been run one to Christ down through the decades or the centuries, but uh, why do I have a lingering sense of sort of a, um, okay, and so what have you done for me lately, as part of, of the way <laughs> the Lord himself might uh, might judge a church like that? Well, the irony here was that I led the church to look forward by looking back just like you did. You reached backward to the Bible 
to to talk about what churches should do now. And that's what I did with this congregation. They had had a tradition of doing some really risky uh, but but doctrinally sound, faith-infused things in their past. And so the people who were who were touting themselves as the protectors of the tradition really weren't protecting the tradition. They were protecting recent uh, turf that they had occupied and the way decisions had been made over the last 20 years. But when you look at what had been happening over the last century, then that was a different kind of tradition. And you could find there, many times in the church's history, where they had made discipleship and evangelism and care for those who are hurting front and center. And so it wasn't a matter of don't look back, just look forward. There's like one passage in the Bible that says that, and people uh, gloss over the hundreds of passages where God says, remember, don't forget, remember, don't forget. And so the problem was not that they were looking back and remembering, but they weren't looking back far enough, deep enough, they weren't remembering the right things, and then facing the present and the future on the basis of the best of their past. There's a pastor right now in Chicago who's helping restart churches the way I did, and one of the things he says that I love is that when we restart churches, we don't erase their history. We have a shared history. But if that history is rooted in gospel advance, then they will not dig in and become a dysfunctional church that resists leadership. Well, and again, I, I have no objection to, to history. In fact, I'm a, a tremendous fan of it, and I believe standing on a, a, a tradition and a, a, a sense of uh, uh, connectedness, if you will, uh, down through the generations, I think that's wonderful and to be applauded and and to be stood upon. But you stand on that foundation and that rich history that should then drive you and compel you to move forward, not to become paralyzed in simply saying, gee, look how great we used to be, uh, that that never allows you to then have that forward-looking sense in terms of, you know, our, our, our relationship with Christ is one that continues to grow and expand. Uh, so too ought that process of outreach and evangelism and discipleship, as we mentioned. And so that sitting of the history and allowing ourselves to become paralyzed where we're just stuck in it, isn't that largely what a lot of these churches wind up dying from? That's exactly what they die from. And uh, so that, and that is what I talked to them about. But now what I didn't tell them is that they're dying because they care about the tradition. Actually, what I did was expand their view of tradition which then shamed them when they uh, didn't put the advance of the gospel first. And so I kind of uh, claim the tradition ground rather than ceding it to those who, were, who had a selective view of it. And to the newer congregations, even if they're growing, let's say a new uh, church, uh, new leadership comes in and the church starts to grow, if they treat the past with uh, a case or a sarah or just something that's you know good for historical you know trivial pursuit, then they end up with a with a maybe a a temporary you know temporary life and and growth, but it ends up being very very shallow because they don't they don't they don't really grasp that what they've been bequeathed uh, uh, fr- from the past, and so I think there's a message about the past 
that both sides tend to be getting wrong. Mm. Uh, and uh, and the, the, the biggest light that shines on that is that some of those who want to be sort of fiercely forward-looking, they keep turning back to uh, the reformers, turning back to the, to the Bible, and I want to say, okay, now you're, now you're talking my language. So we have to be cautious in finding that balance because some are oftentimes um, uh, too reticent to to move or look forward, and they wish to just singularly cling to the past, and others are too rapid or in a rush to to dispense with the past in the process of moving forward. And there's something to be said about the mixture of the two. Let's take a time out on that point. Dr. Mark Devine is with us. We are talking about church replanting, what that means, what that looks like, what that might mean to you and your congregation. Stay with us. We'll time out. Update on traffic, then back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation with Dr. Mark Devine. Let's get into some of your calls. We're talking about church replanting. We'll head off first to Hayward. Paul, good afternoon. Welcome. You're on KFAX with Dr. Mark Devine. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I've been um, checking out a lot of churches. I grew up in the Bay Area, grew up in a real large church, and have been looking around uh, and visiting churches for the last 10 years or so. And I'm seeing one thing that's common in because they are declining. And I'm asking you, uh, Pastor, if, if you see this. Uh, one of the churches that I, I attend regularly has about 1,200 people going there. And on one Sunday, the pastor asked by a raise of hands of, how many people in 2013 had led anybody to the Lord? Less than 12 hands went up out of over 400 people. So what I'm starting to understand with this is that uh, people are going to uh, churches if they are, you know, out of duty. They're getting jobs. They're 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 uh, uh, sacred cow ministries that they occupy for 25 years and won't let anybody in, and and they're not learning to evangelize, and so. This church that I've been attending now for nearly three years, uh, I've, I haven't been invited to one person's house yet uh, or out to lunch. Um, they had the glad-handing thing and, and the, you know, shaking the hands, get up and shake your neighbor's hands, all that stuff. But, but they're not teaching what Paul said about um, uh, the gift of hospitality. Mm. And the gift of hospitality, I think, is what's missing in the churches. Because if a pastor does leave a church all of a sudden, you know, for whatever reason, he dies, you know, whatever reason, the church should be able to maintain itself because the people have already learned how to really be a family, as well as be a family to their, their neighbors and their co-workers. In most cases, most neighbors don't even know a Christian lives next door. They've not. They've not. They're not being taught hospitality. So, what, what do you see? Do you see that as being something? Wow! Some really good observations. What about that, Doctor Devine? I want to tout a, a church in Columbus, Ohio, uh, related to this issue. It's called Xenos, and my uh, youngest son is a is a he's a student in in Columbus, and he's a member of that church. And they, for many years, have made discipleship. Uh, the heart and center of what they want to be about. They don't want anything to distract them from it. And it's a remarkable thing. And so they're, they're most strong in the ways that, that this church that you've spoken of uh, is weak. 
And I will say this, the trend is that nominal Christianity is going to weaken, and the, and the church is, is losing market share, but the churches that survive uh, and thrive in this new environment are going to be stronger uh, because people are not going to use their time to be involved in, in, in churches uh, that are not really meaningful and relevant to them. And I, But I certainly believe that one of the great weaknesses is just what you've spoken about, and that is can, can disciples make other disciples? Well, therein goes a real important key, because whether you talk about a church learning what hospitality is or, or the keys to evangelism, I mean, doesn't this really come down to the matter of, of a lack of real proper discipleship? I mean, how many people show up to church every Sunday and they're kind of there out of, out of duty or out of habit or a sense of obligation, and yet they, they don't know a lot about the Savior that they allege to serve and have never had the experience of ever sharing their faith with anyone. Absolutely, but I do think that kind of thing is peaking because fewer and fewer people are willing to do that anymore. And so uh, people who are in that state, they, they are dropping out of church uh, in, in droves. I'm finding some really exciting things happening with pastors who are in their 40s uh, that I, you know, were my students uh, 20 years ago. And uh, they're, they're planting and building churches that are really a great co- contrast in these, in these areas. And I'm, so I'm really quite hopeful uh, that we're going to see, uh, we're, we're going to see stronger churches uh, in these areas in the future. You, are you getting a sense that the emphasis on, and I'm going to meddle here for a moment, uh, one of the things that I'm pretty good at, <laughs> Uh, there's been such an emphasis on so-called uh, church growth seminars, seeker-sensitive churches. It seems as if we have to have a plan and formula, most of which comes down to simply good entertainment, or not so good, uh, as a means of increasing the size of our church, which a lot of pastors, if they're honest about it, realize we're really only increasing the church by shifting the sheep from one pasture to another. Are you suggesting then that you're starting to see a trend away from that and more back toward genuine discipleship, genuine evangelism, genuine church growth? Yes, and I, I believe that, um, you know, the, the church growth movement, beginning with seeker-sensitive and then uh, purpose-driven, uh, and, and various things that really the church growth movement has morphed and has been chastened. Uh, Bill Hybels himself, you know, uh, uh, launched a survey and, and an analysis of what was happening at his church, and he came out and said that all the problems that you decided are real, they are happening, and so this notion of uh, sort of figuring out what the people can take and tailoring your sermons to it and then try to do the discipleship in some other room in the church is really not working. And so nowadays I think that you really, knowing the size of a church doesn't tell you that much about it. Uh, as a serial interim pastor, that's what I'm seeing. That churches are very different. There's a lot of trial and error going on and that uh, a lot has been learned uh, about uh, the ineffectiveness of watering anything down. And and perhaps the, the big lesson here needs to be unlearning of what we thought were so-called experts and teaching us how to do church right and relearning the fact that all the keys that are necessary are right there in front of us. It's a little book. In fact, it's sold pretty well, I understand. If you're in the right spot, 
you even know the author personally. Uh, the book, of course, is called The Bible. Another one that I might recommend, uh, secondary to that, that's not a bad one either, particularly on this topic, is the one written by Dr. Mark Devine, Replants, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. And uh, we appreciate the insights into this uh, very complicated topic. And uh, Dr. Devine, hopefully we can persuade you to come back for more and we can dive a little bit deeper. And uh, again, our thanks to Dr. Mark Devine. The book, by the way, available through David C. Cook Publications or at uh, the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We know that from Scripture we are made in the very image of God and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so you look at these connections and wonder to yourself just how deep do they go? And by that, I mean, when we talk about our relationship with God, we certainly understand it. We relate to it on the spiritual plane. But does it go deeper than that? Journalist Rob Mole joins us now. He's written a new book called What Your Body Knows About God, How We Are Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. He has written extensively on this topic um, particularly related to health and health care issues. He's also editor-at-large with Christianity Today. You've also read his work, no doubt, in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. And he serves as communications officer to the president of World Vision. And, Rob, great to have you on the program. Well, thank you, Craig. It's great to be here. And it would seem at a certain level that the notion of there being a deeper connectivity with God would be a logical one. I mean, given the fact that he uh, breathed very life into us and that we are made in his image. That's right. That's exactly where I was about to go, was to talk about that image in Genesis where God forms the human being, forms Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathes into him the breath of life. So uh, certainly we are spirit and flesh, and our faith, our spirituality, our connections to God do not are not do not just exist in a kind of ethereal plane, but they they go down to into who we are as as uh, physical beings, as uh, part of God's good creation. There have been some interesting studies done, and we frequently heard this from physicians, and, and not those with an agenda. And I put that disclaimer in there because some eavesdropping on our conversation tonight, Rob might say, well, yeah, sure, these are Christian doctors, so they're primed to prove a point. No, physicians who, who make no claim to any sort of uh, religious affiliation whatsoever, but will say that they notice something unique and different about the patients who are praying patients, and that is that the recovery rate Rates seem to be better. Survival rates following uh, significant surgeries, things of this sort, seem to be better. Attitudes seem to be better. There seems to be a marked connectivity between the health of one's body and one's relationship or connectivity to God. In any of your research, have you seen that borne out in any sort of a, a deeper scientific fashion? Well, you know, a survey of uh, HMO executives found that 94% of them believe that prayer helps medical treatment and speeds recovery of patients. Uh, something like 80% or higher of uh, doctors say the same thing. Uh, I think that the, these people, you know, and I was a, I was a hospice volunteer myself, and, and you, don't, you don't get around people who are dealing with physical illnesses who aren't also in search of um, in search of something greater, and those who have that connection, uh, connection to God, who are able to um, draw on that uh, deep well of faith, 
they're able to they're able to often deal with those illnesses in a much more productive way and often that means that uh, literally you can measure their immune systems and that has an effect they're they're able to respond to disease in healthier ways people who go to church tend to tend to live longer people who um, are engaged in spiritual practices do one researcher at uh, Duke University found or he estimated that the effects of not going to church uh, the effects of the lack of spiritual uh, lack of uh, spiritual involvement was a- as unhealthy for people as smoking a pack of cigarettes every day for 40 years wow now we we certainly can can talk about connectivity uh, of, of the body's positive reaction to positive experiences. There are experiences that help help to release serotonin, and we feel better. We have a sense of being uplifted. Things of of this sort. Have we seen some scientific connection then in that arena in terms of um, involvement in spiritual life? I'm talking about things like prayer, like praise and worship. I mean, I would imagine if from a biblical perspective, we are designed, created in His image and to serve and worship him, that it would almost uh, go without saying that the body would have some kind of a mechanism that, uh, that positively reacts when we're connecting with God at that level. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the newest and among the most successful treatments of people with depression is prayer, simple prayer. Uh, now, that doesn't mean uh, pray a few times and, and Jesus will heal you. Uh, right away, but it does mean that, you know, we tend to go immediately to the the sort of pharmaceutical uh, uh, area in order to treat these things, but uh, one of the most common prescriptions now is for people to to turn to prayer, and it's effective, uh, and it works, and it works because prayer is literally healthy for your brain. It's good for your brain, for you to be engaged in a spiritual pursuit, uh, gaining uh, a sense of purpose and meaning in your life. Uh, It's healthy for your brain to be contemplating God and spend some time uh, meditating over Scripture, spend some time thinking of all that uh, Jesus, uh, especially at this time of year, came to to uh, be a human being on our earth. We can consider all the things that he did, he did, and when we spend some time in that sort of contemplation, it's incredibly healthy for our brain. Have scientists taken the time, Rob, to, um, uh, to watch the way the brain reacts or responds to, um, for example, a praise and worship experience? I know that when I go into church and there is a, a rousing time of praise and worship. Um, it, it, it uplifts your spirit. Whatever troubles that you might have carried into the church with you from the week behind you uh, seem to just sort of melt away, and, and you, you definitely feel as if you've made a connection with God. I would wonder if scientists have ever taken the time to be able to study the brain and see what's going on at that time when people are experiencing that, that worshipful connection with God. Yeah, they sure have. And uh, one study almost jokingly said uh, when people are in worship, it's as though they're uh, addicted to drugs. Uh, one of the natural brain chemicals is oxytocin, and uh, heroin actually mimics that. Uh, and so you get, a, in a sense, according to uh, the researchers, um, 
you get a sense of this spiritual high. You are um, you, you're with all of these people. There's a there's a social aspect there. Uh, you're with people that you know, people that you care about, people that you see week to week, maybe throughout the week, and that gives you a sense of uh, th- this uh, social uplift. And then connecting to connecting to God in in that kind of environment, it's a unique thing. And and uh, one of the ways that our brains are involved is through the through the production and reception of oxytocin. Uh, it's a it's a normal uh, brain chemical that helps us to to sort of feel uplifted. And um, and that seems to be one way that that our brains are designed to have that special feeling of connection to God. You know, God works in the, through physical means all, all the time when he works in our lives, and in that moment, uh, that, uh, that uh, little boost of oxytocin is one of those ways. Yeah, it's interesting. During this holiday season, so often we hear reports of people getting uh, deeper in depression. They maybe have lost a loved one during this time of the year, so it's a, it's a difficult time for them. We see higher rates of suicide amongst individuals during the holiday season. What a wonderful message of encouragement for people to understand that a relationship with Jesus Christ goes uh, well beyond not just God's concern for our our relationship to him and the afterlife, but even God's concern toward how we are doing here on earth in the here and now, and that the benefits of that personal one-on-one relationship with him go so deep and so so wonderfully connected that it can change and elevate even our mood and and, uh, the way we feel about ourselves. With us today is Rob Mole. His book is called What Your Body Knows About God, How We Are Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. We'll take a time out and come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 